other things that are happening in our church. Uh, good news and bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news on one thing, financial front. So we're about $20,000 in deficit. Um, that's not huge in light of a million-dollar budget, but our year ends in January 30th, so about three weeks. And so I wanted to give you a heads up on that um, as we come towards the end of the year because uh, a lot of people trying to get slack in the summer, whether you, you know, you're gone on vacation or whatever's happening. Um, some people give online. Uh, one thing that was shocking to a friend of mine I was sharing with at our church, he always gives with his credit card. And I told him, well, you know, we pay about 3% every time you use your credit card. Um, so if you give $100, we only get about 97 I know you get a dollar back on your whatever rewards are there, but uh, some money's lost in that. Not saying not to give with your credit card, just kind of giving you that information as we think through some of those things and some of the stuff we do with our budget. Uh, good news on our budget is we've, uh, as we've evaluated some of these things, uh, really cut back. We recently cut a facility that we use um, for U- uh, SYU, the youth, on Sunday nights, and the worship team meets there, and we've been able to reprogram some of our programming. So they're going to be work- meeting at the office now, which has saved us uh, quite a bit of money, so that's great. Um, also, some other things that are happening with our church as you may remember, we launched uh, an initiative back in the fall called 10X, and really what that was was trying to say everybody who's uh, you know, committed to the vision of our church, connecting people to Jesus for life change, be more intentional than ever before about trying to reach your world for Christ. And since the fall, we've, uh, as far as the recorded decisions that we know of, had over 160 people place their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's awesome, yeah. Um, and that's through, you know, Sunday services, uh, Christmas Eve, Easter services, and individuals. We had over 30 people say they had led people to Christ on a renewable church membership survey. So that's exciting uh, to see that, outreaches that we do in the community and, and various different things. So that's some of the stuff that's happening here, an update on your church. And uh, we're talking about being the church in the book of Acts, and we're going to continue to do that. Um, we're going to open up to Acts chapter 8, starting verse 26, where we left off last week. We'll turn there in, in just a moment. Will you pray with me before we do that? Let me... Let me pray for us as we open the scriptures together. Father, uh, we come before you, and uh, we are just grateful that you've given us your word, (laughs) that we're not just down here trying to figure it out, that you've spoken directly to us through the scriptures. And I pray, God, that the scriptures would be authoritative to us, the scriptures would be um, what we come to for your guidance and your truth, and that you would lead us in our lives, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us. There are so many things happening in the amount of lives that are represented and those that gather together and call Southbridge home. Um, things happen in every area of life, and God, we want you in control of that. Will you please speak into each one of our lives today? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, just thinking about all the things that are happening in our lives, how many decisions do you think you make in a day? Just think about that for just a moment, and you can't count them all. I I promise you that. I tried to figure out a stat on this and uh, did a little bit of research on this, and I saw numbers that ranged all the way from 5,000 decisions a day to 35,000 decisions a day. So I think it's safe for me to say that all of us make thousands of decisions every day from the moment we decide what time to get up and deciding what time to go to bed and set that alarm for the next day. And everything that happens in between with finances and with food and with relationships and with email and with kids and with you know, running errands and all the decisions that you have to make. So I'm trying to make it a little bit more tangible for you. How many decisions do you think you make related to food? And you probably you have three meals a day probably and then maybe eat some snacks in between or, or whatever. But just think about it in your mind for your personal life. And so everybody's answer might not be the same. But how many decisions do you think you make related to food? Go ahead. I want to hear what the answer is. Three? Deciding which meal? How many? A hundred. All right. We got a high. We, do we got any tens? We got any tens? I want to hear some tens. You think about everybody has a different answer. And maybe it's ten and maybe it's a hundred. And somewhere in between there was a study that was actually done on this. And they asked people, the average answer that was given was 14. And took those very same people and had them track how many decisions they would make with food. The average answer was 227. 
just related to food decisions. We make a lot of decisions, okay? That doesn't even count, like, what you're going to do and how you're going to respond to your email and how you're going to respond to a person and who you're going to talk to and whether you're going to make this purchase. And start thinking about all the decisions that we make. There's a, something out there that the social scientists call decision fatigue. And the idea is that we all make a certain amount of decisions, but as we make more and more decisions, we get worn down, and towards the end of the day, we make worse decisions. And so they've done studies of, like, judges in court cases with very similar cases, very similar circumstances, will make a different decision at 8 o'clock in the morning than they do at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And if you're up for parole, trust me, from my reading, you want to go in the morning. That's the way that it ends up working. And you think about the decisions that you make, and decision fatigue, and, and sometimes they'll talk about this with athletes, quarterbacks will make better decisions in the first quarter than they do in the fourth quarter. And the supermarkets, they understand this. You go through the supermarket and think about all the decisions you have to make. Coupons and finances and budget and how many meals you're going to have there and how to have balanced meals and you can buy enough carrots. And you get to the checkout line and what do they have there? Junk food. They know this. Like you've already worn yourself down picking carrots and now there's a sugar stick. And you say, well, it has peanut butter, right? I mean, you, you kind of go for it at that point. It's why infomercials are on at night in the middle of the night. You never see an infomercial at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Because no one in their right mind should ever buy some of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's a vacuum cleaner in your hand. You're cutting your hair with it, okay? Is that really a good decision? And so it's from decision fatigue. And you see smart people make bad decisions because they're worn down. I remember being around some of the smartest people that I'd ever been around in my life when I was in seminary. I uh, met people with in, just incredible amounts of intelligence. My Greek professor was a guy who would study ancient Greek manuscripts 12 hours a day. The guy was so smart, he would come into class and he wouldn't even remember what we did the day before. He'd say, you know, where were we? And he'd just open up his Greek New Testament and we'd tell him and then he'd just start teaching. He didn't have to prepare for class. He'd just come in there and start teaching us and he'd start challenging us with, you know, syntax questions and grammatical questions and interpretive questions, exegetical questions, ethical questions, all kinds of questions from the text. And while he was doing that, sometimes I would burn inside with questions. And I remember there was one that kind of struck me that whole semester. I started to develop a relationship with this guy, and we knew each other one-on-one -on -one and in the classroom setting. And uh, one day after class, I felt bold enough to go up to him and say, Dr. Wallace, I have a question. It's kind of a personal question. Is that okay? I said, yeah, Scott, what's your question? I said, do you wear the same shirt every day? Because <laughs> every time I saw this guy, he had this short sleeve button-down denim shirt on. And he'd usually wear it with some, you know, blue twill pants. And sometimes he wore shoes. Sometimes he didn't wear shoes. It's like if he remembered or not that day. It's kind of quirky like that. But he always had the same shirt on. And so I asked him this question. And he just looked at me. He kind of chuckled. He said, I've got a whole closet full of this shirt. I don't wear the same shirt every day. I just don't want to have to think about it in the morning. <laughs> this guy had so many decisions to make. He wanted to kind of go on autopilot with some of the general decisions. It wouldn't be, it'd be nice, wouldn't it? Think about all the decisions you have to make. Maybe you don't make decisions with the ancient Greek text, but maybe with spreadsheets, maybe with your checkbook, maybe with what errands to run, maybe with who to employ and how to employ them and what their schedule is going to be, maybe deciding where you're going to live, who you're going to marry, what college you're going to go to. And wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be nice if God were leading all of those decisions? I mean, as a follower of Jesus Christ, wouldn't you want your life to be led by God? And let me just pause and say, for those of you who have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, if I told you that there is a God, the supreme being of all the universe, a God who created you, who knows you better than you know yourself, he knows you by name, he knows the hairs on your head, he knows the thoughts before you think them, and he cares for you even more than you care for yourself. 
and he wants what's best for you. He wants to guide you. He wants to lead you. He wants to protect you. He wants to provide for you. He knows your wants. He knows what wants will be beneficial to you. He knows which wants will actually harm you. He knows your needs. And if you follow his lead, it will actually lead you to fulfillment. Then wouldn't you want that God to lead your life? I think we all would. But the reality is not all of us have a life that's led by God. For some people, it's culture that leads our lives. For some people, it's someone else's expectations. Some, it's the pursuit of power or happiness or some other self-fulfilling desire that we have. For many of us, we lead our own lives. And today, we're going to talk about the God-led life, the life that God leads. And what we need to do is then, as we look at the passage of Scripture we're going to look at in Acts chapter 8, is ask ourselves, is that my life? Is my life characteristic of the things that we're going to be talking about in the God-led life? If you have your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 8. We'll start reading in verse 26. I'm going to go all the way through verse 40 today, and then we're going to look through this story and and, and see how God is leading all throughout and what's characteristic of the life that God leads. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me. Acts chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 26 in just a moment. It picks up where we left off last week. Remember last week, what had happened is that there's a guy named Philip, and God's using him to fulfill God's mission. God's mission was stated back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. If you don't know this verse by now, by the end of the series, you will memorize it. because we say it every week. Uh, But here's the verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses where in in Jerusalem. But the first seven chapters of Acts all happen in Jerusalem. And so they're staying in this one spot. But then persecution comes in Acts chapter 7. And then eventually it's the first Christian murder, the martyrdom that takes place. Stephen's murdered, and then people start to spread out. And God takes this guy, Philip, a a layman. We don't know what his job is, whether he was a dentist, a stockbroker, a teacher. We don't know what he did, but he wasn't a professional Christian. And God uses him, and even though he's not one of the 12 apostles, and he's the guy that God uses to then take the gospel to the Samaritans. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria. Those are people that aren't like the Jews in Jerusalem. And what we saw is that God's grace is for all people. Amen? But not all people receive God's grace. And we saw a guy named Simon the sorcerer who, if you were to ask him, is God leading your life, he would have surely said yes. The guy heard the gospel, made a profession of faith, was baptized, but was not a follower of Jesus. It's the guy that Peter says to him, to hell with you, Simon. It's with you and your money. Because you're on your way to hell. Because you're trapped. You know what's leading your life? Power. Popularity. Money. But what we see in the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today is a guy whose life was being led by God. Look at verse 26 with me. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he told him exactly where he wanted him to be. And so he started out, and he went on his way, and he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official, in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to that chariot and heard the man. Can you just imagine that, by the way? The guy's riding his chariot. guy runs up next to him. <laughs> runs up next to the chariot. Heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked as he runs next to the chariot. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So now you've got the driver, the eunuch, and Philip sitting in this chariot. And this is what the eunuch had been reading. So passage of scripture from Isaiah 50, 53, it says this, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet speaking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture. 
and probably told him other passages of Scripture from the Old Testament and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And then when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but when he went, he, but he went on his way rejoicing. Verse 40, Philip, however, appeared at Aztus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So what you see here is God's leading all throughout this passage. Verse 26, the angel of the Lord speaks to Philip. Verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord prompts him, go specifically to this chariot. And then you see the very passage of Scripture. You couldn't pick a better passage of Scripture to preach about Jesus from than Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. God's leading him to that passage of Scripture. Verses 32 through 35 there. And then you see God's leading after that. Verses 39 and 40, both with the eunuch. She probably, he probably went back to his people and shared the gospel, the Ethiopians. And, and then you see that Philip goes to eventually to Caesarea where we find him 20 years later in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, God's leading is all through this passage. And it'd be easy to jump right into verse 26 and start talking about an angel speaking to us and what that would be like and the Spirit prompting us and how the Spirit leads us. But we might miss what's already happening. There's a, a preface almost point to this message, and so we're not going to spend a bunch of time on it. There's a point I want to make sure that we make that we don't miss because it's easy to overlook. When we talk about what kind of life does God lead, God leads a life on mission. And we don't want to miss that Philip is already living his life on mission. It's almost a, a prerequisite to, to having God leading your life is that you're obviously doing the things that are so clearly stated in Scripture, and we see that with Philip. It would be easy to do is to jump into verse 26. Now an angel, the Lord, said to Philip, go south to the road. Specific instructions on where God wants him. Then jump down to verse 29 and says, and on his way, once he gets there, in verse 29 it says, the Spirit told him, so a prompting of the Spirit, go to that chariot, have a conversation with that person. Intimate instructions on how God wants him to live his life, where he wants him at, who he wants him interacting with. It wouldn't be easy if God would just do that. I mean, we think about our decisions, you know, who am I going to marry and where am I going to go to school? Where should I live? What job should I work? And all that stuff. If God would just speak directly like that, it'd be easy. But what we could miss here is what's already happened in Philip's life. We met him back in chapter 6. Remember what was going on in chapter 6? Was that there were the apostles, the 12 apostles, they were preaching and they were praying and they were trying to wait on tables at the same time. They couldn't do all that stuff. In order to continue on with the mission, they needed to pick seven guys to wait on tables. And so in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, another man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. His role in the mission at that point was to serve behind the scenes so that the apostles could then preach Christ to everyone. He was living his life, though, on mission, part of the mission. What's his mission? It's at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Be my witnesses wherever you go, wherever you're at, in Raleigh and Durham and Cary and Chapel Hill and Holly Springs, whether you're working with senators, whether you're working with janitors, whether you're with your kids, whether you're in the marketplace, wherever you go, you be my witnesses. And Philip here, he's doing it in Acts chapter 6. Then we see him again in Acts chapter 8, verse 5. He's doing it now in another way. Instead of behind the scenes, now he's on the main stage. It says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. He's the one that's giving the verbal proclamation. And there's a whole nation of people coming to Christ. And so it would be easy to go to this passage and look at verse 26 and look at verse 29 and, and be jealous. Like, God, if you just led my life like that, it would be so easy. Then I, I would do that. Of course I would do whatever you said to do. And oftentimes what we do is we actually ignore what he's clearly already stated. Things like Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the mission. And so what we want is we want God to speak into our lives 
about these intimate details when we've totally missed the big picture. And, and what's happened here is that we've got to remember Philip's already living his life on mission before God starts to speak to him like this. And so we want God to oftentimes tell us, you know, who to marry and where to go to school and what job we're supposed to take. But are we even thinking about God's mission? Like when you evaluate what job you're supposed to do, are you thinking to yourself, God, will you put me in a place where I can connect as many of my coworkers to Jesus Christ for life change as possible? Or are you thinking about a benefits package and a salary package? Our comfort. When you pick where to live, are you thinking what's closest to and what's the most comfortable situation? Or are you thinking about how can I reach as many neighbors as possible for Jesus and when you want to get married, are you thinking to yourself, and I don't know if you have even thought like this ever before, maybe some of you did and some of you, you have no idea of this, you think about what's God's plan for marriage, his vision for marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. The husband loved his wife like Christ loved the church, Christ gave his life for the church, and then the wife would then submit to her husband like the church submits to Christ, and there'd be a, can you give me a spouse that would help me demonstrate the best possible way the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you just thinking, I want him to be hot, I hope he has a job, you know. That's the kind of stuff that we oftentimes think about. We think about our comfort, our convenience, our oftentimes sinful and selfish desires, and we want God to speak into those, and we totally ignore his mission. It'd be like this. It'd be like, uh, think about our country. Our country sends different people out, not on religious missions, but on different missions to do things. And what if they ignored the mission? Like, what if we sent, you know, every four years we send out Olympic athletes, right? And the whole country enjoys watching those things, and whether it's a swim meet or a track meet, or I think everybody probably watches that watches any kind of sports, the, the girls' gymnastics. And so we watch these, you know, 14 to 17-year-old girls, and everybody turns on excited about what's happening there. What if they just didn't show up one time? Because you think about it, they go to some cool spots, some of these different places they have the Olympics. Rio de Janeiro, I think, is the next place. Can you imagine if they go to Rio de Janeiro and we turn on, we want to see the all-around for the girls, and they're not there. Our girls just don't show up. And then that night, around midnight, Bob Costas does an interview with them, and they're sitting there, and, you know, ladies, you just didn't even come. And they said, wow, we had never been to a place like this. It's amazing. And we were shopping. You need to go down to Chinatown. They got a great deal on some purses down in Chinatown. And, and you say, I bought this watch. It says it's a Rolex. It was five bucks. It's amazing. Can you imagine if our girls said that? We'd be appalled. Like, you're supposed to represent our country in, in a way that's honorable and, and Lord willing. You'd bring home a medal. And you totally disregarded the missions so that you could have fun. Or a more serious analogy, we send soldiers all over the world to fight for our freedom, to fight for the freedom of other people, and fight for their uh, different rights that they have, and oftentimes human lives are online. Can you imagine if one of our soldiers abandoned the mission because there was a good deal on lunch, and they went to have lunch, and then they went scuba diving, and people died, and then it was in the news. We'd be appalled. But there was things to do. I mean, there was fun to be had, and there was comfort, and there was convenience, and that's what they were seeking, and they abandoned the mission. We'd be offended as uh, Americans who send them out. And let me share something with you, not to be offensive to Olympic athletes and certainly not to be offensive to our soldiers. The mission that we have as believers in Jesus Christ is far more serious than any of those missions because we're talking about eternity. Okay, it doesn't get any more serious than that. I mean, 70 or 80 years here on earth, that's, that's a big deal. A human life is a big deal. But eternity, nothing measures up to eternity. That's our mission. You will be my witnesses. You'll tell people the good news about me that could transform their eternity wherever you go, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Raleigh, Durham, wherever you're at, you're my witnesses. That's the mission. And we ignore that and then want to know where can be the most comfortable place for me to live and the most convenient job for me to have and, and the best spouse that would meet whatever selfish desires and needs that I have. 
And by the way, what you say is kind of nice about that whole deal, and if it works out, I'll tell somebody about Jesus. But would you please speak into the intimate details? See, God speaks into lives that are already on mission. Philip's life was already a life on mission. Not only that, he lived a life on loan. You can go up to verse 26, and he's given this command. We'll evaluate this command in just a moment. Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, from a human perspective, this is really uh, a ridiculous command. It doesn't make any sense at all. And then verse 27, he does it. Why? It's because Philip realizes something that many times we forget as believers in Jesus is that his life was on loan. Every follower of Jesus Christ has been bought at a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that you are not your own. You've been bought at a price. And what does that mean? Well, what happens is that we're all created, so we're all God's children in that sense. That God creates us, but what happens is that every person rebels. All like sheep have gone astray. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We've all chosen to turn our backs on God to rebel from Him. It's called sin, and we don't meet His perfect standards. And by not meeting those standards, we incur a debt, a sin debt. Unfortunately, it's a problem that we can't solve. There's no amount of good works you can do. There's nothing you can do to pay that debt back. But what Jesus Christ did is He gave His life as a ransom for many, and He paid that debt. And when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you enter into His family, you're no longer your own. You're now bought at a price. So guess what? Go for broke. I mean, it's not your life anyways. Live it all out for Christ because it's why Paul's able to say for me to live as Christ, to be on mission for him, to make him known, and to die, I get to be with him. It's gain. It's why the psalmist says that your love is better than life because he grasps how much God loves him and wraps him up in. He becomes consumed with God's love for him and then ultimately with God himself, draws him to the Savior, draws him to his Father. And he says, my, your love is better than my life. I'll lay my life down for you. And that's where Philip's at. We saw Stephen do it in the last passage of Scripture that we were in, in chapter 7. He'd lay, he, when he realized he was going to be martyred, he's just going for it. He's just sharing the gospel. He's just tell, just go for broke. And that's what Philip does in this passage. It doesn't matter where God wants him or what he wants him to do. It says in verse 26 that he's supposed to go to this, uh, down to this desert road. It says, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now what had happened at this point is that Gaza had been wiped out. And they had built another town kind of off, off to the coast. But the, the road that he's talking about was a desolate road, rarely ever traveled. There's hardly anybody ever on it. And he says that he, says that he emphasizes it here when he makes that little parenthetical statement. The desert road, and if you go back to the verse, it says, go south. That word south actually literally is translated at noonday, at midday. So at the hottest time of the day, I want you to go out into the middle of the desert. Now remember where he was at. He was in Samaria preaching to a nation of people seeing hundreds, maybe thousands of people come to Christ. And then an angel says, now I want you to go out into the middle of nowhere at the hottest time of the day. I think if I receive that command, little thing here, I don't like to sweat, by the way. Um, if I'm working out or, or doing some kind of work in the yard, that's fine. But uh, it's been so humid lately, and I've got this like profuse sweating thing that I do. I'll look out the window, and I start to sweat. Now, if the angel said to me, go into the middle of the desert, I'm going to go, why? What's out there? Why would I? That doesn't even make sense. I'd probably try to rationalize in my mind how certainly that wasn't God, and certainly God would want me to stay here in Samaria because people are coming to Christ and all this stuff's happening. Why would he want me to go in the middle of nowhere? So what blows me away about this is the very first couple uh, words here in verse 27. So he started out. He doesn't ask for a second opinion. He doesn't like rationalize in his mind how that certainly this angel couldn't. You know, they come as an angel of light. It's got to be Satan. He wants me on the desert. You know, they couldn't. You could talk yourself out of obeying this. Some of your translations may say, he arose and he went. Here's the summary. He did it. Without asking questions, he went. 
And I read that and I think to myself about God leading our lives and I, I wonder, do we really want God to lead our lives? Or do we really want God to tell us what we want to hear? And if we're really candid, we want God to tell us what we want to hear now. And oftentimes we say we want God to tell us what He wants us to do. It's really a sign of our impatience more than it is our desire to hear from God. Because what if God tells you something you don't want to hear? And if you go through Scripture and you start looking at people that God speaks to intimately like this, guys like Moses, guys like Elijah, Elisha, you start seeing sometimes God says to do stuff we would never come up with on our own. Moses is trapped up against water, right? And all the Egyptians are coming down on him. And what does God say? Raise your staff. <laughs> I'm scaring the sheep off? Like, what do you, why, why am I raising a staff up in the air? Does that make any sense? Look at Elijah. He tells Elijah, I want you to go to a widow who only has a meal left for her and her, her son, and I want you to ask for it. Well, I'm a gentleman. I mean, certainly I wouldn't, wouldn't do that. I'm testing your faith, and I'm testing her faith. Or, or he says that Elisha, Elijah's mentee, he says to him, hey, I want to tell, when this Naaman guy comes to your house, I want you to tell him to go dip himself seven times in the Jordan. You see that you watch that interaction. That's pretty interesting because then Naaman says, no, the man of God's supposed, let me tell you what he's supposed to do. He's got it all planned out in his head, how God's supposed to work. He says, come out here and wave your hand over me and heal my leprosy. Elijah's like, hey, if you don't like, don't like what I had to say, whatever. When God said, he goes back in his house. Naaman's all huffy puffy. Read the passage. It's interesting. Second Kings chapter 5. One of his servants says, well, wouldn't you do anything he told you to do if you knew you were going to be healed? He's testing his faith. He goes down, he dips in the Jordan, and he becomes, he's healed. It's a willingness to do whatever God says. And most of us, that's not true for us. Really, we say we want to know what God has to say because we have something we want him to do, like Naaman. And we want him to do it our way, and we want him to do it now. God, I, who do you want me to marry? No, really what you're saying is you're done being single. So somebody, what if he said, you know, I, you know, I don't want you to be married. Are you okay with that? Or I'm not going to give you that person for five more years or ten more years. What job do you want me to have? Well, it's in Iran. <laughs> Let's talk about this again. Or I want you unemployed for right now because I'm going to do a work in you that you'd be distracted by a job from. So I'm going to do a work in you that I need to have you right here. Or I, it's always, a, you know, show me something. You must be preparing me for something big down the road, right? Well, what if he just wants you right there and that's the plan? Are you okay with that? I mean, do we really want to know what he has to say? Because I don't think that, that, that Philip was here searching for a way to go down a deserted road in the middle of the desert. That's where God wanted him. Who said that he wanted to be back there feeding widows behind the seat, you know, mixing up some rice and cleaning up after senior citizens? Who said that he wants to be on the main stage in Samaria in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5? Maybe he's a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. He certainly probably doesn't want to be out in the middle of nowhere with no one in the desert. But you know what Philip wanted? Philip wanted to be wherever God wanted him to be. And that's why you don't see in any of those passages, in chapter 6, in chapter 8 at the beginning, in chapter 8 right here, he's complaining about this situation. It's God, my life's on loan. It belongs to you. Whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And so I ask you this question. What if God wanted you to do exactly what you're doing? If you asked him to speak to you and he said, I've got you right where I want you. Listen to this quote. It's by Paul Tripp. He says this, If God doesn't rule your mundane, then he doesn't rule you because that's where you live. And sometimes we talk about these heroes of the faith and the amazing decisions that they made. But they lived for 40 years, and we see one decision. Or they lived for 60 or 100. You know, it depends if they're in the Old Testament or not. I was thinking this week about Joseph. Not the one from the Old Testament. Joseph, Jesus' dad. 
And he makes this decision based solely on what God told him to do because it makes no sense from human perspective for him to take Mary as his wife. And how many mundane days do you think that Joseph had? As a carpenter trying to provide for his family, if God doesn't rule your life where you're at right now, then he doesn't rule you when you're leading a revival. He doesn't rule you when you're feeding the widows, then he doesn't rule you when you're on the main stage, and he doesn't rule you when you're out in the desert. And so, do you live your life like it's a life on loan? It's not really yours anyways. God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. See, God leads in a life that's on mission. God leads in a life that's on loan. And our third point is that God leads in a life that's under the word. Look what happens. He goes out into the desert, and we see two men that are under the word. You see somebody else that's out there. He goes in verse 27. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. And so he's the CFO of a nation. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. That was about a thousand-mile journey. He's on a chariot. That would be five months each direction. What's really interesting is that this man is a eunuch, which means he's been castrated, he's been emasculated. Oftentimes this would happen because a king would want a young man to watch over his harem and wouldn't want to worry about whether that young man was going to take advantage of the circumstances. So he would castrate him. Uh, he would not have all the male parts is the simplest way that I can say that. And so that he couldn't fulfill any sexual desires, any temptations that he would have there. And so he could trust this guy. Sometimes those guys would be very trustworthy and they would raise up to other positions in the, in the government. And here, this guy did. Incredibly wealthy man. He's traveling on a chariot. And that time, most people walked. If you were very wealthy, you had an animal that you could ride on. If you were extremely wealthy, you had a chariot. And on his way home, he saw this guy sitting, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. He's a Gentile. To get his hands on, a bo- on the book of Isaiah would be a scroll to be about 8 inches wide, and it'd probably be about 16 to 145 feet, depending on how many chapters he had, long. And it would cost him a lot of money. So this guy's incredibly wealthy. He's an Ethiopian. The Ethiopian culture, by the way, uh, was one that was very mystic uh, from the perspective of a Jew or a Roman, the Greeks. They all looked at the Ethiopians as this flourishing, advanced culture. Oftentimes when you read the ancient literature about them, they talk about them as tall people with very smooth skin. They were dark-skinned people, black people, and so they were different than people Philip was used to associating with. And so he's got this guy that's kind of mystical, that's traveling around. He's probably got an entourage following him that are walking behind this chariot. He's riding in this chariot. He's very wealthy. He's reading the scripture. And Philip comes running up to him because God prompts him to. That would be bold. To approach someone of this position that you don't understand, that you look at as so different than you. And what's most interesting is that this guy had been traveling to Jerusalem to worship because eunuchs, they weren't allowed to enter the temple. And so this guy traveled five months in each direction to go to a temple that he would not be allowed to enter. If that doesn't show you the longing in his heart for God, which we all have, then I don't know what could show you that. And the guy's reading his new book. While he was there in Jerusalem, apparently he bought this copy of the scripture, which would be incredibly expensive for him. And he's reading his new book, the prophet Isaiah. And Luke tells us which section the guy was reading from, probably right when Philip goes running up to his chariot. And the things that he'd been reading right around there are interesting. Uh, if you read it, it says that he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was, we received peace because he was crushed. It's all like sheep have gone astray. It's all right there in that passage what he would have just read. It's an exact description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing is it was written 800 years before Jesus Christ walked on this earth. 
And, and the guy says, who's the prophet talking about? Is it, is it himself or is it someone else? And then it says that, that, that Philip then uses this opportunity to start with that passage and to show him from the Old Testament, probably went to like Psalm 22 as well. Oh God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And starts looking at these Old Testament passages that point to Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And then what happens is the guy surrenders his life to Jesus Christ. And we see in a little bit, he gets baptized. He, he's under the word. He hears the word of God and he does what it says. That's what it means to be under the word. When I say under the word, I'm talking about that the word is the authority. Okay, because a lot of people act like the scriptures are a good guide. Uh, the scriptures are, are a nice influence in our lives. Uh, it's inspirational. Perhaps, you know, you read it in the morning because it makes you feel better about the day. It, it kind of gives us, you know, hopefully if it gives me something that would be applicable to my life and I'll, I'll apply it to that and hopefully it works. But to be under the word means this, that when you come to the scriptures, you're willing to do whatever it says. So can you imagine tomorrow morning, uh, you get up in the morning and you go down to the kitchen table and before you even open the Bible, praying to God and saying, God, whatever, whatever it says today, I'm going to do that. Which kind of works in some situations. Like You can come to some scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. I could try that. I mean, we really care about ourselves. We try to meet every need we have. When we're tired, we go to sleep. and we eat, we feed ourselves. And I want to care for, I'm going to try and care for my neighbor like I would want someone to care for me. And so we'll try that out. You come to eventually some other scriptures that become more difficult, though. How about this one? Be holy as I am holy. It's all over the scripture. Well, I mean, everybody's got their stuff, right? He didn't really mean that. He knows no one's perfect. I mean, he even said, all like sheep have gone straight. We're all sinners. But it says, be holy as I am holy. Or what if it says this, forgive as you've been forgiven. He forgave us unconditionally, regardless of our offense. What about this one? Love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wait a minute, but Christ died for the church. And he's continually serving even to this day the church. Yep. But I've got needs too, and I want her to do these things. And how if I do all that, then is she going to... See, the reality is this. Let's be really honest. We like the Bible... We feel good about the Bible. We open the Word every Sunday. We, li- we like that. Many of you open the Word every day in your own personal life. But are we under the Word? And think about what God's Word is. God speaks and things happen. Just at the very beginning of Scripture, you see God spoke. There was nothing. There, can you even imagine nothing? Anytime we've seen anybody ever create, whether it's you know the guy with the afro on the public access TV painting a painting, whether it's a book that you read, uh, whether it's any a musician, whatever it is, somebody creates something, they've always created out of something else. You've got what you got. I mean, we're going to make a clay a pot. You didn't make the clay. You just made the pot. And so you, you made something out of creation. There was nothing God spoke, and it was. That's a powerful word. You, you see him speak, and some of you are going to go on vacation this summer. And in the book of Job, it says that God tells the ocean how far to go. So as you stand at the edge of the ocean, you know that God said, stop right there. He speaks, creation obeys. He speaks wrath, look at Sodom and Gomorrah. He can speak and wipe out an entire people group. That's a powerful word. And the creator of the universe has taken his word and he's putting it, put it down into written scripture to speak directly to us. And just some of the passages of scripture that are in this word that tell us about his word, uh, like Hebrews chapter 4. It says this in verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing the soul. And spirit, that's his word, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That's his word. Jesus, when faced with temptation, he tells Satan, 
He says, man doesn't live just on bread, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. That's his word. We see that his word, it can transform our lives. Paul says this to the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, and we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, Paul speaking here, but as it actually is, the word of God. That means you did what it said, which is a work in you who believe. In 2 Timothy, we're told in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it's useful for everything. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. In verse 17, so that the man or woman of God may be, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It equips us, it changes us, it does guide and lead our lives. In Psalm 119, basically the whole thing talks about God's word. How does a young man keep his way pure? By meditating on your word. Psalm 105 is one of my favorites. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It directs us and it leads us in our lives. We read all those verses and you know what? It can build our confidence in what the word is and we're people of the word and we open the word every Sunday and we open the word at home, but are you under the word? When you're under the word, it's whatever it says, that's what I'm going to do because that's the authority. Now let's be real candid. We leave, live in a time that philosophers and theologians, they call post-modernity. And what that means is uh, we all have our own truth. Uh, you have your truth. I have my truth. What's true for me might not be true for you. And, and what ends up actually that means is that our experiences trump everything else. And if we're postmodern and we then call ourselves Christian and we don't realize how much we're being led by our culture, but we are, and we start to evaluate it, then what oftentimes happens is the Scripture is not authoritative in our lives. We're our ultimate authority. And our experiences trump everything else. Let me give you some examples of things that actually get said by people who attend this church. And so if you think I'm picking on you, it's I'm only picking things that have been said more than one time. And I'm picking on you. Let's talk about sex. And talk about some meetings that you'll have with people, and uh, they'll talk about different things. And you'll read a passage of Scripture that says, sex is just for a husband and wife and a marriage relationship committed to one another. Oh, but that doesn't apply to me. Because I've been married before. So who's the authority here? You and your experiences or the scripture? It's you. Uh, what about this one? Um, forgive as God forgave you. But Scott, you don't understand what's been done to me. That might be totally true. But I'm not talking about what I said. I'm talking about what the scripture said. So do you have to forgive or not? Because if you think you don't, who's the authority? You or the scripture? Well, be holy as I am holy, but... I know it's an anger issue, and I know it's been a problem in my work, and I know it's been a problem in my marriage, but listen, my dad was that way, and his dad was that way, and it's just how God made me. So your experience then trumps the validity of this passage of Scripture that God can't do that work in you. Who's the authority? What about this? I was made this way, and, and, and if God didn't want me to do this, and he wouldn't give me these desires. Oh, really? We have a lot of sinful desires. Well, he wouldn't allow me to do it. So then your experiences now trump the scriptures. So who's the authority? Guess what? It's you. And many of us live that way in many different areas. We could spend the whole time here just going through scenarios. And we, we oftentimes explain ourselves out of passages of scripture because we don't want it to really impact our lives. It's not authoritative. We're the ultimate authority. If God wanted this, then why would he, these circumstances and this opportunity and this thing? And, and our experiences then trump the scriptures. Let's be honest then. We're not under the word. And what we see here is some, some men that are under the word. Philip has been bought at a price, and then he explains Jesus Christ because it's the mission that God's given him, even if it puts him, his life on the line. And then you see this guy, what happens next in the passage? He goes, hey, look, there's some water. I should be baptized. You said I should believe in Jesus? I believed in Jesus. 
He said I should be baptized. Well, there's water. What would stop me from being baptized? Talk about a spirit of submission. Like if the Bible says it, then I'm going to do it. Can you imagine going to the scriptures? That's a scary book, by the way. And saying, God, whatever you say in this book, I'm going to do. That's living under the authority of the scripture. Who's your authority? Who leads your life? That's really the question. Is it culture? Is it money? Is it someone else's expectations of you? Is it probably for most of us, us? Or is it God? And let me just say this, friends. If anyone's leading your life other than the God who created you, who knows you by name, who knows the very hairs on your head, who knows your thoughts before you think them, who knows your wants and which ones will hurt you and which ones will be beneficial to you, and ultimately if you follow him, that's what leads to the very thing that you're trying to produce on your own, then you're in danger. Let's pray. Father, give us a longing for you. Help us to see how much you love us. Help us to see how much you care for us. That we'd willingly come under your authority. That we'd willingly, God, surrender our lives to you and acknowledge that our lives are on loan from you. If we've surrendered our life to your son, Jesus Christ, and if there's any here that haven't, I pray they would now. And we live on mission for you, Father. God, we surrender to you and we need you. You're our only hope. You're our only answer. God, help us to be like this eunuch in this passage. You say it, I'm going to do it. Help us be like Philip in this passage. You're guiding, you're leading, your spirit's prompting and directing, and it's all underneath your word and your authority. Father, help us be the kind of people you desire for us to be. Help us be the church you desire for us to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.